Bethel World Outreach Church. Reaching a city to touch the world. Thank you, Bryson. My wife and I landed in Nashville one week ago today after six weeks in Asia, and I was met at the airport by my son, and I asked him, uh, how was church this morning? And he preached back to me Bryson's message from last Sunday. I thought, that was pretty impressive. It was Sunday evening, and he still remembered the sermon, and uh, he was going on and on about it. And that seriously, that's... The, Still talking about it by Sunday night. So my hope is you'll be talking about this at lunch, which is only like pretty soon. Um, I want to give you a quick update before we get into the word today uh, from our time in Asia. And as Bryson mentioned, we're, Bethel is a founding member of Every Nation, which is a global uh, family of churches and campus ministries. We're now working in 82 nations. When Bishop Rice and I and a few others started this ministry, uh, Every Nation, 25 years ago, we were in three nations. And in 25 years, now it's 82 nations. And uh, Rice was with us um, a few weeks ago. Rice was in Asia, and he did. This is, this is pretty amazing to me. I get tired looking at his schedule. Um, he did eight God's Not Dead meetings on eight different university campuses in two days in Manila. And I want to show you a picture from one of them. This is the University of the Philippines, Los Banos, one of the academic elite uh, in the Philippines. And this was the filled with students, but the next picture is outside. The auditorium filled up way before the meeting was starting, and so someone ran and got a screen and wired a sound system and there were over a thousand students outside who couldn't fit in the room. And uh, to hear Rice give the evidence for God, the evidence for the resurrection, and preach the gospel. And hundreds responded to a call to surrender all to Christ. So really appreciate all that, all that Rice is doing around the world to continue to preach the gospel on university campuses. He is the world's oldest teenager. Another highlight from our trip to Asia, and please don't post this. I know this is, this is just for in this room, um, because this is one of our underground churches in, in Laos. Laos is one of the few remaining communist nations in the world, and this is the 10-year anniversary of our Every Nation Church. And I, I want you to think about this for a moment. Um, there are very few churches in that nation with as many people as this section right here. This would be a mega church, just this section. Actually, um, half of this would be one of the larger churches in that nation. Very few Christians, uh, strictly illegal, everything that, that we do there for the gospel. It's a communist nation, officially atheist, but in the hearts, most people are sort of a hybrid Buddhist and, um, and everything that goes with that. And so when you look at this picture, this is the 10-year anniversary of our church. One of our pastors, I can't say his name and I can't show his picture, for seven years was a Buddhist monk. I've got pictures of him in his orange robe and shaved head. Uh, and Buddhist monk, now he's preaching the gospel every week. Um, and so this was taken right after our 
10-year anniversary church service. So think about it for a moment. Everybody in that picture, except for there's a white family, they're Germans. Um, not sure what they're doing there. But, um, and there are four Filipino missionaries and me. Everyone else was an atheist or a Buddhist before our teams landed there 10 years ago. And, um, and I, that is a gathering of Christians that large is, is a sign and a wonder. And so that's just one example of what God's doing around the world uh, through the ministry that you are a part of. I would like to take just a moment and do what these scriptures on your wall, on your left and on your right, what they say. And one reason this building that you're sitting in right now exists is because of what this scripture says. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Um, that wasn't accidental. That wasn't just Pastor James looking for a verse that would fit right there. It was looking for the right wall to put that on because that's what this church is all about. And I think it's what every church should be all about. My house will be called a house of prayer, not period, comma, for all nations. And I'd like us to do that, but I do want to pray for the nation of New York right now also because Pastor James is preaching there. Kind of like a different nation for some of us. Um, can we take a moment and pray? Lord, thank you for all of the thousands of people who heard the gospel while Bishop Rice was preaching across uh, Asia this past month. And we pray for those people who heard the gospel and those who responded. We pray for Laos. We pray for those who are suffering for their faith, for those who are risking much to worship, to read their Bibles, to make disciples. And we pray for Pastor James as he ministers to our, to our church in New York City. Lord, bless the preaching of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today starts um, our Bethel Advent series. And Advent, if you're from a liturgical church, is if you grew up in more of a liturgical world, uh, the four Sundays prior to Christmas Day is called Advent. Uh, or the Christmas season, or according to the Starbucks Cup, the, Holly, the, the, Hollywood, the, the holiday season. Advent. Uh, Advent means a waiting. We're waiting for something. There's something coming. And so this will begin uh, uh, several sermons about the promises that God made and that he always keeps. I think about two years ago at Christmas at my house here, uh, my oldest granddaughter was around three, and her little brother was 18 months, and she was proudly explaining the nativity set in my house to me. And it's on a little table and the little, you know, little figures, and she's going, Pops, this is a camel, and I'm acting real interested because I was. This is a sheep, this is a manger, and see the star that was showing him where to go, and then she, this is Mary, this is Joseph, that's Jesus' parents, and she's explaining it all to me. And she said, these are the wise men. And she stopped there, and I said, well, Josephine, something's missing where she didn't get the clue she's putting and I said there's one more who's missing here and then I gave a hit baby baby Jesus yes I said where's baby Jesus in this thing and she reached into the manger and she pulled out a little piece of cloth because you know everybody's little she said here he is it wasn't baby Jesus it was the um, swaddling clothes a diaper it was a little <laughs> And that started a family search for Jesus. He went missing from the manger. 
Um, and it reminds me of our culture, our once Christian culture, where we have every piece of Christmas. We have the manger, we have the camels, we have the donkeys, we have the barn, we have Mary, we have Joseph, we have the three wise men, who were they, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, those guys? We have them all. I mean, we've got Rudolph now, not just, not just camels and donkeys, we've got Rudolph, we've got Olaf. We've got Frosty, we've got Elf, we've got John McClain, Hans Gruber, and Cousin Eddie. They're all there. Um, but we've somehow misplaced Jesus. The mystery of the missing Jesus was solved about five or ten minutes later. We kind of gave up looking for him, and I brought my 18-month-old grandson a blueberry Offered him a blueberry, and he gets so excited about blueberries. And so with one hand, his left hand, he reached out to grab the blueberry. And simultaneously, he put his right hand in his mouth and pulled something out. Baby Jesus. And put the blueberry in. Um, we hope from this pulpit in the next few weeks to help you find Jesus this Christmas. And we also hope to take whatever else you have taken instead of him, not out of your mouth, but out of your life. Um, with that, I want to read an interesting text for Christmas. You've all, if you've been in church, you, you hear usually three Christmas sermons every year. And, you know, you've probably heard about every text preached that you could possibly preach the Christmas message from but I bet you've never heard this one. Here we go. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. And those who know your Bibles quite well are going, no, you're not going to do this. Some of you are going, he's not about to do this. He is. Here we go. The Christmas story beginning from the book of Matthew. And to remind us all that this too is the inspired word of God. I want you to stand on your feet as I read our text today. Matthew 1, verses 1 through 16. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram and Ram the father of Amminadab and Amminadab the father of Nashon and Nashon the father of Salmon. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed the father of Jesse and Jesse the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation 
to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltael, and Sheltael the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, Mathen the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. This is the word of God. You can be seated. Why in the world would Matthew start his gospel with a long list of unpronounceable dead people's names? Why would he do that? Why would the people who put the Bible in the order that we have it start the New Testament with, of all of the things you could put about the life of Jesus, to have, I mean, start this thing with a bang? Malachi ends the Old Testament. There's this 400 years of silence. There's no real word from God. And now, boom, here's the New Testament. And we start with a list of a Jewish genealogy. Wow. I prefer the way Mark starts with a sprint. Gets right into the meat of the life of Jesus. Or John that starts with some really rich, deep, mind-boggling theological concepts. But a list of names. Wow. What was he thinking? And you're going, what were you thinking to use this text to start our Christmas series? You have to understand that genealogies meant a lot more to them back then than they typically do to Americans right now. Now, if you're not American or you weren't born and raised in this country, especially if you came from an African nation, a Middle Eastern nation, or an Asian nation then you probably are more in touch with the importance of genealogies. But many of us are not. Now, when ancient genealogies were written, they had a, not just a sociological impact and importance, but also theological for this purpose. This is introducing the doctrine of the Incarnation which is the starting point for us to understand who Jesus really is. And wow, there's a lot of misunderstanding about who Jesus really is. But this starting point is important. Um, When we think about genealogies, if we go back, people in Matthew's days, in writing a genealogy, there were some understood rules. The same way, you know, you understand that when you pull up in your car to a light and it's red, it means stop. If it's yellow, it means go faster. If it's green, it means go. Or wait, I'm back in America, right? That's Asia. Okay. <laughs> yellow, I'm not sure what that means. But you get it? There's under, we just understand certain things. They understood with the genealogy, here were pretty much the rules. Number one, the goal was to prove a perfect Jewish lineage. That was the point. Goal number two, or rule number two, you generally only included males. 
That's just the way the culture was. There could be an exception if the female was of such amazing, uh, indisputable nobility. Sometimes a female name would work its way into a genealogy, but usually not. Thirdly, it was okay to leave certain names out. You couldn't list everyone, but you always made it pretty much an all-star list. You left out the scandals. You left out the average people. It was, a, it was a highlight reel. And the fourth understanding of genealogies was that uh, you start the genealogy with the person that's like the most significant. So if you read an Old Testament genealogy, it'll go Abraham, and then it lists all of the people after him. And then it'll list David and all these people that are connected to him. Now, it's interesting that Matthew violated all four of these understood rules of writing genealogies. Matthew was a smart guy, but he did it absolutely backwards. He did it all wrong. He included not a pure Jewish lineage. He actually proved the opposite. He actually listed at least three non-Jews, three Gentiles, perhaps more, but at least three. He included five women Okay, but they weren't of the highest nobility. They weren't Sarah, Rebecca, uh, Rachel. It wasn't those people. The people he included were the ones you want to erase. He also didn't do an all-star list. He did an incarceration list. He included murderers, idolaters, adulterers, prostitutes, a whole list of illegitimate kids. It was all the stuff that brings shame not that brings honor. It's fascinating. The people that Matthew chose to include and those he left out. And finally, he didn't start with the most important person. He ended with it. He didn't start with Jesus. All of this mess of these people he listed are making their way toward Jesus. And I think it's a clear message that it doesn't matter where you start, you can still end up at Jesus. It doesn't matter what kind of detours your family took on the way, you can still end up in the destination. Why would Matthew do it this way? Why didn't he just write the genealogy like all of his contemporaries would have? Why didn't he just write it like every other genealogy of in the Roman Empire and in the, in, the, in the early Jewish world would have done it? Why did he do it so differently? It couldn't have been a mistake. I think he's telling us something loud and clear. No matter how shameful your past, no matter how messed up your family no matter what you may have done to mess up your own life, you can still make the list. You can still end up on Jesus' family tree. Isn't that good news? Question. Is there something in your past that brings a sense of shame? Is there something in your lineage 
your people that you're not particularly proud of? Something in your own experience, in your own life? Because there's, there's two things going on here. Well, there's, yeah, the people that we're connected to that we don't want to talk about, we all have that, right? We just don't talk about it. <laughs> if you don't have that, then maybe you're that. No. Uh, <laughs> but there's also, and more importantly, or more close to home, the things we did to mess up getting on his list. Some of us think Jesus is like Santa Claus. He's got the naughty list and the nice list. But that's not what this list is. This is a list of his family. Thinking about shameful past, one of the most embarrassing moments of my life was in fourth grade. It's a long time ago. Some of these things stick with you, don't they? I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, and so we had Mississippi history. If you grew up here, you had Tennessee history, or whatever state you grew up in, fourth grade, you have history of that state. I don't know if they still teach history anymore, probably not, but we did. And in fourth grade Mississippi history, there came this moment, I had no idea I had a famous relative, or I should say infamous. Never in my life had I ever heard of this person. And suddenly in the history book, here was the famous Natchez Trace bandit and horse thief, John Merle. And the, my classmates start snickering, and, and they all assume that we're related, and Merle's not a real common name. And I go home ashamed, embarrassed, humiliated, and I ask my dad, and he gets a good laugh about it. Yeah, we're a distant relative, and he starts telling me the folklore of John Merle, the famous Natchez Trace bandit. He actually is buried in Smyrna around here because he spent much of his adult life in prison in Nashville. This is in the early uh, 1840s. Uh, the horse thief. The, um, here's what he did. He was a fake preacher. So you say, well, there are a lot of preachers in your, in your heritage. Well, one. And what John Merle would do, he would set up tent revivals. And he would preach and they would fill up. And his gang would steal all the horses while he was giving the altar call. And then he would go into the next town. And they finally caught him because they couldn't figure out why his horse never got stolen. He would ride off. Yeah, that's in my line. But it gets worse. Matthew intentionally included all the John Merles in Jesus' lineage. Again, he did it for a reason. Let's look at some of those he included. Let's start with the women who shouldn't have been there. Okay, that, that shouldn't even have been on the list in that culture, in that time. Tamar, first female he mentions. Tamar is a Gentile Canaanite who turned to prostitution when her husband died and she was left in poverty because her in-laws wouldn't take care of her. So she seduced her father-in-law and bore his child. She was the wrong ethnicity to be on the list. She was a Canaanite. The next female mentioned is Rahab. We know Rahab from Jericho before the walls fell. She was a 
she was another prostitute who became King David's great-great-grandmother. She was in the wrong profession to be on this list. Then we have one whose name's not even mentioned. She's just called the wife of Uriah. Uriah was a Hittite mercenary. And this wife of Uriah was the victim of sexual abuse at the hands of a rich, famous, powerful political leader. And then the final, or not the final, but the fourth female we have is Ruth. Now, Ruth lived a noble life. I understand why she's there, but still, it's the wrong ethnicity. This is supposed to be proving the Jewish ethnic line, and yet Ruth is a Moabite. She's not Jewish. Now, all of them made the list, though. There were reasons why they shouldn't have been, but they were on the list. They're all part of the family. Think about the men. Boy, they make the women all look like saints. I mentioned a rich, famous, powerful man who sexually abused the wife of Uriah, David. That was David. Abused his position of power. There was another guy that lied about his wife twice, risked her life to save his own. That was Abraham. There was another habitual liar, deceiver, thief, that God continued to wrestle with him and wouldn't let him stay that way, named Jacob. There's this other guy who fathered three sons with his Canaanite mistress, fathered another son with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. This guy's Judah. There was another guy who had a Gentile prostitute who produced a guy named Boaz, David's great-grandfather. That's this guy in this list named Salmon. Then there was the guy who expanded Israel's worship from one god to multiple gods and made temples and idols all over the nation, Ahaz. And then there's the guy who's probably known as the most violent, wicked, worst king in the history of Israel. And that's quite a feat because they had some horrible kings. Manasseh is on the list. If I'm leaving somebody off, I am leaving him off. But they all made the list. You think there's hope for you to make the list? I mentioned the John Merle and my family heritage. It was a humiliating moment in fourth grade, but thank God for Ancestry.com, for those of us who are um, genealogically challenged for a minimal fee, we can go find out. My younger brother is our family historian all over that Ancestry.com, and he talked to me about John Merle, but he explained to me there was another John Merle who lived a hundred years before the horse thief. And this other John Merle, the first one in America, was actually a real pastor and a real preacher. He pioneered the first school and the first church in what's now northern Louisiana in the 1600s. Um, And I dug around a little bit more with the help of my brother and found out that I read something that actually started turning my mind about John Merle, the bandit, the horse thief, the fake preacher. He was a part of a slave revolt in about 1842-43 in Canton, Mississippi, where my brother lives now. 
And I thought, okay, maybe he did something good to redeem himself. But then the more I read in that, he actually was a part of it, but he wasn't helping. He was actually scamming abolitionists for money. Um, it just got worse from there. Um, so that started his second imprisonment. Um, Matthew's gospel teaches us that we can rise above gender inequality, racial bigotry, sexual abuse, that the victim and the perpetrator can both be transformed. Think Bathsheba and David. We can rise above adultery, cultural oppression, family secrets, financial disaster, shameful ancestors, and personal failings. The verse that immediately follows the genealogies, the verses, tell us how that can happen, how we can overcome all of that, why that can be real, why our future does not have to be determined by our past. Why what God has waiting for us is not dependent on us being a part of this list of pristine, perfect people. Matthew 1, 21, we'll end with this verse. After this genealogy, this list of interestingly bizarre characters, which I think a lot of us would fit into that, here's what he says, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And I need to pause right there because this is the first introduction of Jesus we have in the New Testament. And you can't properly introduce Jesus without talking about sin. A lot of people try it today. A lot of preachers try it. A lot of people paint this picture of a Jesus totally apart from human sin and it misses the point of who Jesus is and why he came and therefore it misses the whole point of Christmas. I know you're not supposed to talk about sin in a Christmas message because Christmas is supposed to be joyful, happy, cheer, celebration, hallmark, happily ever after everything turns out wonderfully in 90 minutes or less because that's Christmas but no no that's not it the reason Jesus came the reason the son put on human flesh and came in the manger to be born that day was to save people from sin from the sin of our ancestors and from the sin of yesterday from the sins perpetrated against us and the sins that we have done totally on our own by ourselves. To save us, not from hell, from sin. The first intro of Jesus, not as a miracle worker, not as a wonderful teacher, not as someone feeding the hungry, saving people from sin. And then it says this, all this took place, verse 22, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Here's that promise, promise kept, promise fulfilled. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name. Here's another name now. Wait a minute. They thought he was Jesus, saving from sin. But here, now, he's Emmanuel, which means God with us. A lot of people want that. They pursue the presence. They want God with them. They want God close, but they don't want to deal with sin. If we want God with us, Emmanuel, we have to get over here at this part and receive Jesus as the one who saves us from sin. He deals with sin. Then he becomes Emmanuel, God with us. The presence, the closeness, who walks with us every step of the day, walks in front of us, behind us, beside us, all around us. We can't have one without the other. But the starting point is he saves us from sin. Yes, from the cultural sin around us. Yes, from the ancestral sin. Yes, but also from personal sin. The choices every one of us have made and make saves us from sin. We live in a world that doesn't believe in sin anymore unless it's someone else's. But the Christmas story is about saving humans like you and me from sin. And then he becomes God with us. He saves us from sin so he can be our Emmanuel. God with us. I told you a story about the empty manger a couple of years ago in my home. And how we found baby Jesus in baby Liam's mouth. I thought about this morning, thinking about this, another empty manger. And I'll... I'll try to wrap up with this. I, when I was a kid growing up in Jackson, we would go to a Christmas Eve service every year at St. Philip's Episcopal Church. And it was interesting because it was right around the corner from where I lived. And so we would pass the church, always going home. And beginning with Advent, the first Sunday of the four prior to Christmas Day, they would put up an empty manger, life-size, it was a large, uh, large lawn in front of the church. And as far away, if it's here, over way on the edge by the street, they had a life-size donkey and life-size cutouts of Joseph and Mary. And every day, the four weeks getting closer to Christmas, they would inch it a little bit closer and a little bit closer and a little bit closer. And then coming from the other side were three wise men getting closer and closer. And we would drive by coming home from wherever. My mom would always go, look, look, Mary and Joseph are getting closer, closer. And then on Christmas Eve, we would go to church after four weeks of this. And guess what? Joseph and Mary arrived. The star was there, but the star hadn't been there until now. There's the star right on top of the little barn. And the manger's still empty. And there's the wise men and all of that. And then the Sunday morning, not Sunday, but the Christmas morning, there was a service. And guess what? Jesus would appear there in the manger. That's how they did it. Our culture does it like this, where from Thanksgiving until Christmas, everything's cheer and joy and celebration, and we're going to celebrate Christmas, and then it's over. It's the exact opposite of what Scripture was and what church historically did pretty much until the last couple of generations. It was a waiting an anticipation, an advent, waiting and waiting and searching hearts and, 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 and more of a soberness. And then Christmas hits and then the party started because Jesus is here. 
And I'm not suggesting you not celebrate, but there is a seeking and a waiting. We don't really like the waiting part. The, from about the 12th century on, believers have spoken about three different advents or waiting until the manifestation of the Lord. The first advent they talk about is Christmas, waiting for the promise to be fulfilled of God coming in human flesh in the manger in Bethlehem. That's a historical fact. The last advent that's spoken of is the second coming of Christ when he will return bodily, physically to earth. But the third one, or the one in the middle, is every individual believer, an advent of receiving Christ into their own lives. You know, that's the message of this genealogy is that no matter what has gone before us, no matter what we've done, none of that matters. We can make the list, but how? It's not by being good. It's not by being born in the right family. It's not by going to the right church. It's by having Jesus Christ come into our lives and change us. It's by having Jesus come in and saving us from our sins. Then he becomes Emmanuel, God with us, 24-7, all the time, no matter what. My prayer for you and your family members is just that, that everyone can have that encounter with Jesus that saves their soul for all of eternity, changes what Christmas is all about, changes everything. I want to end with these words from a hymn written several hundred years ago by Charles Wesley, speaking of Christmas and looking forward to that moment. Here's what he says. Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hell the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for those who think somehow that the shame in their family past would somehow keep them from you. The shame of any sins they've committed would keep them from you. Lord, I pray for a revelation of you as the one who saves us from our sins and you as the Emmanuel God with us. Lord, I pray that you would open hearts this Christmas season and that you would reveal yourself. If you're here today, as we close, if you would like prayer, either there's stuff in your life and you think, man, there's just too much shame. I don't think I could ever be close to God. When this service ends, Pastor Bryson can tell you there'll be people down here to pray for you. Some of you, it's a day to go and pray with someone about receiving Christ as your Lord and Savior. Others of you, there's just stuff that's back there bothering you. We would love to pray with you about any of this. If you've watched this message and you want to make Jesus Lord of your life, I've got good news. You can do it right now. I want you to pray with me. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my life for the rest of my life. I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I need you, my Savior. I believe you died for me. I believe you were raised from the dead on the third day. And I confess that you are now Lord of my life. If you've just prayed that prayer, I have good news for you. You have eternal life. The next step for you is to get in a Bible-believing church. We volunteer to be that church. 
But if not us, we pray God's blessings on you as you search for God's best for you. Thank you. Bethel World Outreach Church. Reaching a city to touch the world.